the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz and this is the Science Inside. It's the one hour of the week where we get a little bit nerdy. We've just come through Easter weekend, but there's still still today left before we have to go back to work and studies. Happy Family Day from the Science Inside team. And we will be talking about some science around family today and what you share with your closest and dearest. That is what's on the show today. But, of course, at least with biological family, one of the big things you share is your DNA. We genetically share a lot with our family, from how tall we might get to whether we have a higher or a lower risk of certain cancers. But I want to kick off the show before we get into very serious things with something else that's genetic. That's not just serious, but kind of hilarious. That's why my producer Bridget is here with me. Hi Bridget. Hi Elna, how are you? I'm very good and I am very excited that you're here because you are a little bit of a guinea pig on this one because there is a specific gene that you might share with your family and I have a sneaky suspicion that Bridget may have this gene so we're going to try it out live on air. What I have in front of me in this plastic bag you can hear it, is some cilantro. So you may not know it under that name. In South Africa, we usually call this herb coriander leaves, even though um, a lot of countries call it coria- I mean, uh, cilantro. It's green, it's fresh, it tastes great in curry, at least for some people. About 4 to 14% of the population has a hereditary gene that makes them taste, get this, soap when they eat cilantro or coriander. Can you believe that? Soap. And it's up to 20% of people with um, an East Asian background. So it's pretty crazy. Scientists studied 30,000 people and their love or hate for the herb and found that people that thought it tasted like someone had slipped sunlight liquid into their soup all had one thing in common. They carried a gene called OR6A2, which is responsible for smelling aldehyde chemicals. Aldehyde chemicals are present, at least these chemicals, these specific ones, are present in, you guessed it, both cilantro and soap. So there is a lot more here genetically that they don't know yet, that scientists are still trying to figure out, but it's safe to say that genes play a role in this. And that means if you hate coriander, you can blame your family. But of course, not all family members might get this gene. So for instance, I personally do not have this gene. I love coriander. But my brother has this gene and so does my dad. So I actually have a clip here of my brother Martin explaining how he figured out that coriander was the problem. So I first noticed this whilst eating chicken salads and chicken wraps. The taste is very much like sunlight liquid. I always concluded that one of the ingredients in the salad or the wrap had simply been washed with dishwasher liquid or some other soap and, yeah, just hadn't been rinsed properly. After a while, I abandoned that theory because it didn't seem plausible and just concluded perhaps it's what chicken tastes like when it's seriously off and threw the sandwiches away. And so it took me quite a while to actually work out what exactly it is because depending on the packaging, it's either labeled coriander or cilantro. So even once I had a theory about what ingredient might be the cause, the occasionally with differently labeled package still threw me off. No, I just avoid both. So you just heard from my brother Martin explaining that he really realized that he hated coriander, not because he hates curry, but because it tastes like soap to him. And as I said earlier, this is a certain gene that actually about 10% give or take of the population has. So I'm here with um, our producer, Bridget LePere, and I I have a little suspicion that maybe, just maybe, Bridget, you might be one of these people. Do you think you are? I have a very strong taste buds, so I think I might be one of those people because I, <laughs> I get to taste things that other people don't usually taste in food. And is your family the same? 
any of your family members? I have a very acquired taste, I guess, in food. So, no, I don't think so. Okay, so I do, in fact, have some cilantro or coriander here. Bridget is looking quite nervous. It's a herb, Bridget. <laughs> don't worry, it won't kill you. I don't like coriander, that's why. <laughs> so, I'm going to hand it over to Bridget here. Okay. Uh, and have her have a little taste there. It's fresh from my garden, so um, it's about as good as, as it can get. Have a nibble there and tell us, we know you don't like it, but does it taste like soap? Do you have the gene is what we want to know. It's so, um, it's so strong. I've never tasted it like this. So raw. Mm. Actually, it tastes um, perfumey. It does taste soapy. So, live on the Science Inside, um, we don't torture our producers for for no reason. We do torture them for the sake of science. We have just realized that, in fact, Bridget may very well have this gene called OR6A, and she may share it with her family. So, that's why today on the show we are talking about Family Day and Family Science. I don't recommend that you give your family... Um, coriander because i'm seeing bridget's face she's not impressed <laughs> but now we know so later in the show we are going to look at more science around things that you share with your family one thing of course is fertility if you want to even start a family so we will be speaking to dr mohammed igbal kasim from the BioArt fertility center later in the show it's unscience where we find out why cute aggression is not so aggressive after all but a normal aspect of human nature then we look at a scientist behind the science as we always do with Nyasha Tamandamba you can find us on social media as always it's the Science Inside on Facebook the WhatsApp line is 0840784912 find us on Twitter um, under the hashtag Science Inside at VowFM you know exactly where to find us, but do keep listening to The Science Inside. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Okay, let's see what we have in the news today with our producer, Bridget LePere. What do you have for us? Well, I have a story about how scientists were able to restore motor skills of patients who have stroke through nerve stimulation. And researchers at the University of Texas have found a technique that uses vagus nerve stimulation, VNS in short, to speed up motor skill recovery in patients who have suffered a stroke. The vagus nerve oversees elements of many unconscious body functions such as digestion and circulation. And motor skills play a vital role in almost every activity a person can possibly do. And this would range from language, speaking, body movements or adaptive behavior. So clinical trials in Texas and 15 other sites across the country are underway testing the feasibility of this technique. The team leaders of the study, Dr. Michael Kilgard and Professor Margaret Ford Johnson at the Texas Biomedical Device Center were prompted to explore the option of Vegas nerve stimulation to rehabilitate patients who were physically impaired by stroke. According to Kilgard, the question for many was whether the therapy would rehabilitate every single action. But to their surprise, it turns out that VNS also improves similar motor skills too. Okay, that sounds good. I mean, most of us have somebody in our family or know of somebody who's had a stroke and it's so terrible to see them afterwards not have that full movement. So it's great that they're able to do something. Yes, Elna, and as you would know, long-lasting impairment of the arm or the hand is a common consequence of stroke. It is known as an attack on the brain, and it usually occurs when the blood flow to an area of the brain is cut off. And when this happens, the brain cells are deprived of oxygen, then they begin uh, to die slowly, and their death causes abilities controlled by that part of the brain, such as memory and muscle control, to be lost because there is no longer communication between the brain and the affected body part. Mm. You see, this is so often the case that it's not the brain or the body part that's the problem. It's the communication in the middle. So earlier you mentioned that trials were underway, but how exactly 
is this testing being carried out? A preclinical study on mice was conducted to investigate whether the combination of a physical therapy task and VNS would improve the function in the upper limbs of the rodents. Then the outcomes of this study were very outstanding, displaying that not only a faster recovery rate uh, was restored when compared to the current therapy methods, but also re- rehabilitation to other parts which were not prompted through stimulation. That's incredible if you can have a bigger effect than just where you're stimulating. But even though this, uh, this is, of course, only on mice, what do these results mean for humans? In short, this study suggests that if this approach can be used and is effective in rehabilitating complicated motor skills, those improvements can be filtered down to improve simpler movements. Traditional rehabilitation methods only bypass the brain's damaged area and this actions other brain cells to handle the lost functions. However, this method is limited because there aren't many nerve cells left. So the patient continues to have long-term movement impairment. Okay. How does this treatment, you're saying is called a VNS, how does it differ from other treatments? So I know, for instance, there's a method where they inject the damaged tissue um, with a drug that dissolves the clot in the brain. They might even remove the clot. How is this one different? Well, for one, VNS does not carry heavy risks associated with those of other treatments that you have mentioned. Uh, With those treatments, they risk bleeding in the brain and potentially death. VNS helps the brain to recognize itself more quickly. It is a well-documented technique for fine-tuning brain function. It is already being used in humans to treat depression and epilepsy. Treatment is delivered by implanting a device in the neck, then the nerve is stimulated electrically. This treatment is successful because it strengthens communication between the brain and the affected body part, as I mentioned earlier, and the nerves make the communication possible by taking over nerve cells already damaged by by the stroke. The experiments indicated exponential results showing a three to five fold increase in nerve cell activity when VNS was incorporated with other treatments. So again, as with a lot of these studies, it sounds very promising, but it might be years and years away for people who've just gotten a stroke now. It might not be a solution. When are we expecting them to be accessible? Well, the scientists say that now they are sure that the treatment is effective and are also finding evidence that change could be made in the brains of animals that had sustained brain injury. They look forward to understanding how the therapy works and anticipating using this treatment on humans. The team is also working on an at-home rehab system targeting the upper limbs. They have devised a tablet app for patients to interact in the comfort of their homes. The app would outline hand and arm tasks for the patients. And as they do the tasks, VNS would be delivered as needed while the therapist assesses their performance and monitors recovery remotely and my story was found in the sciencedaily.com okay so it does sound hopeful we will obviously have to see how that one turns out bridget for my story let's talk about your interstitium what's that it is an organ in your body didn't you know (laughs) no i was the go-to girl in my biology class so i would know if anybody around here (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I really didn't think it was possible to discover much anything that's new in terms of organs, but apparently it is. So congratulations, dear listener. You now have a new organ. It's called the interstitium, and it's one of the layers below your skin's surface, but it's also part of the lining of major organs like the digestive system and your lungs. It's also around arteries and veins, so it's pretty large if you count all of that together and all over your body up till now these layers have of course been seen in a way or been there but scientists thought that it was just dense connective tissue with not much function pathologists at nyu school of medicine in america as well as other researchers have found now that this layer is in fact full of interconnected fluid filled compartments 
and it has significant implications for the function of all organs, most tissues, and how some of the major diseases in the world work. So what does this interstitium network do? So first of all, it's almost like a little shock absorber that can help keep your tissue intact and it helps organs, muscles and vessels basically do their job as they're supposed to. It also has, like I said, pretty big implications on diseases like cancer because scientists suspect that this network of cells may mean that cancer is more likely to spread throughout the body once it gets into the interstitium. It may also play a role in skin wrinkling and how uh, inflammatory diseases get worse over time. So clearly knowing more about this will open up all kinds of other things. Okay, it's great to know, but I still don't understand how it's possible that scientists hadn't noticed this all of these years. Especially because we all have it, so it's not, it's not such a mystery. Well, it has to do with the fact that the interstitium is made up of basically little bubbles, little cavities of fluid. So up till now, the typical way of studying any kind of tissue included draining fluid away and collapsing the tissue walls so that it's kind of like a flat slice that you look at under a microscope. So then you can see all the cells and the structures really well. They never knew that they were missing a whole layer because it had been collapsed. Wow. So this the discovery now recently was made with a new technology called probe-based confocal laser endomicroscopy. So it's a way of viewing the inside of your body, basically using cameras, lasers, and sensors. And they observe living tissue, not squished flat ones. So when a team of doctors used this for a probe in 2015 that was completely unrelated, they noticed some cavities in tissues that they had never seen before. But lo and behold, when they processed and studied the biopsies, that's test samples, these cavities were suddenly gone. And that's where the research for the interstitium started. Hmm, great stuff for science. It sounds great. Well, not everyone in the science community is on board quite yet. They recognize, many of the critics recognize that it's been found, of course, but they don't think that it should be called an organ. Critics are saying that it doesn't fulfill enough of a standalone function to warrant that name, but it does pave the path for some powerful new research and solutions, including diagnosing diseases by testing the fluid in the interstitium. So this news did come from Science Daily, New Atlas and NYU School of Medicine. If you want to go have a look, I think it's pretty cool and we'll hopefully find out a lot more about it in the coming years. Next up on the Science Inside, we talk to a fertility specialist and he will break down all you need to know about getting babies. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome back to The Science Inside. My name is Alna Schutz. And today, because it's family day, we thought to ourselves, one big thing about families is, of course, fertility. And I know for a lot of the students listening, maybe you are not thinking about getting a baby right now or planning for a family necessarily, but it might be something that you want to do in future. So we thought we'd prepare you and we'd look into the science of fertility and with it, of course, infertility. The person we are speaking to is Dr. Mohammed Iqbal Kassim. He is a fertility specialist and one of a few doctors in South Africa qualified in diagnostic and analytical aspects of fertility. He specializes in embryology and gynecology within that field, as well as various other research fields. He runs a high-tech fertility center in Brenthurst called Bioassisted Reproductive Technology, or BioArt in short. And Dr. Kassim is also the founding member and chairperson of the Registrar Working Committee at Wits University and is a board member of the South African Society of Reproductive Science and Surgery. It's quite quite a, a, a long uh, line of expertise that he's in, and we're so happy to have him on the show with us today. Welcome, Dr. Kassim. Well, thank you very much, Elna, and uh, um, thank you for all the listeners out there. So, I think a lot of people might have assumptions about the trends in fertility. I've heard people say to me, oh, people are getting 
children later or people are having more trouble uh, getting children. And of course, that's all anecdotal and it might just be your particular experience. But what have you from a scientific point of view observed in terms of the trends around fertility and childbearing in a modern world? Well, that's extremely, it's an extremely uh, uh, relevant question and um, uh, unfortunately there's no single uh, simple answer for that. There are a lot of societal issues that one has to take into account in terms of making the assessment or the assumption that trends are changing uh, uh, in terms of fertility. However, there are some there are some very good research papers and articles that have been published uh, where, in fact, it has been shown that there is a real uh, definite change in terms of uh, fertility potential pertaining mainly to males. So uh, a lot of the studies have been conducted using sperm and semen parameters as an index. And one of the countries that very prominent in this, in fact, is uh, the, the, in the Nordic uh, regions. Uh, Denmark, where they've got very good historical uh, records going back to the mid to late 1930s, where they've done sperm analyses and kept good records and registries, and they've shown a definite trend in the last 30 to 40 years where male semen parameters have in fact declined, and alarmingly so, uh, and we are concerned about male fertility going forward. Um, so that is a real trend. There is a, there is a problem, and we can maybe touch a little bit on that uh, as to what the causes are uh, and what we think the causes may be. Um, with regards to females or the female component of the fertility problem, the, the, the lines are blurred, um, and simply because we know that a lot of females in the past did not come forward with fertility issues, did not uh, a, a volunteer to seek help, it was more a taboo issue. Uh, so there were many, there were many social restraints, if you may call it that, to gaining fertility care. A lot of that has changed with our understanding and, and perception. So more, more couples and more women are coming out of the closet, so to speak, and seeking help. There's also the other issue, of course, of delayed parenting, where um, for, for reasons of, for social reasons, for career purposes. People have delayed pregnancies uh, into the 30s, uh, mid-30s and beyond, in fact. And, uh, of course, that does pose a problem because what happened 20, 30 years, maybe 40 years ago, um, uh, uh, no longer applies. So uh, delaying parenthood brings about other conditions which uh, lead to fertility issues. Mm, you call it a fertility problem or the fertility problem and I would like us to go a little bit into the causes because I know that nobody would want this and when somebody's trying to get a, a baby whether they are male or female um, and they are, they are trying for a child and it's not working it feels of course extremely personal if, if the question mark is on you are you the problem so can you take us into please do take us into some of the causes whether they are your genetics and you are just born with them or perhaps environmental stresses, what are the big things, especially now, that you are seeing are causing the problem? Well, yes. Uh, there's a lot, you know, in terms of uh, causative factors, uh, etiological factors, one may call it. Uh, so I won't have enough time to elaborate on each and every one, but I think it would be for, for simplicity's sake, important to compartmentalize okay, uh, the problem firstly in terms of male and female so you have imp most importantly you have the male component uh, of a fertility problem or a female component or both so uh, there was a time when we thought that 70% of fertility issues were, were female related um, and 30% male there has been changes in that percentage so we, we we're roughly looking at about a 60-40 and probably an overlap of 10% here. So one could say that nearly the playing fields are level here. So as much as one would blame the female, the male is equally to blame. 
Now, in terms of causative factors, in, in the female one would again compartmentalize and say there's two main components to the fertility problem, broadly speaking. One is an anatomical problem, that means a structural issue regarding the reproductive organs. And uh, one could further classify that as something that you're born with. Either you're born with an abnormality of your uterus, you may be born with one fallopian tube for that matter, you may be born with one ovary, you may be born with other genetic defects as well. So you could have a structural or anatomical related or inherited defect, or it could be acquired. That means as you get older, you start picking up certain pathologies and that could be pathology related to the uterus, such as fibroids, uh, which are benign growths, which grow very commonly in Africa. You see a lot of fibroids in Africa. They grow uh, in, and change the shape of the uterus, distort the, the, the pelvic anatomy. You could also get changes uh, from endometriosis, which is a condition that is uh, increasingly common as well. I could elaborate on all these conditions, but broadly speaking, you could have anatomical abnormalities either of the fallopian tubes, the uterus, the cervix or the ovaries which could be um, uh, as I said inherited or acquired. Um, the other compartment that one needs to deal with in a female would be the hormonal environment. Um, this is obviously again uh, uh, indirectly impacting on or directly impacting on ovulation. So without an Without ovulation or without the production of an egg, pregnancy becomes increasingly problematic. Mm. And there are a lot of women out there who suffer with hormonal or endocrine-related problems where they don't have regular cycles, may not be ovulating, they may have um, uh, uh, issues re related to metabolic syndromes. I'm talking particularly about uh, young girls uh, with polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, obesity and insulin resistance and lifestyle related issues as well. So these are all problems that relate and, and, and reflect in the hormonal environment. Thyroid problems increasingly common and all the hormones interrelate to each other. That means they have an association with, uh, with each other. So whether it's the thyroid or the prolactin or whether it's the cortisol or whether it's uh, the follicle-stimulating hormone, they all have something to do with each other, and therefore an imbalance in one department may well lead to an ovulation problem and a fertility issues uh, down the line. So one has to look at all these aspects, causative aspects. Right. Having, having said that, it, it, it does not necessarily mean that if you pick up one problem that you don't have another. So very often in our, in our fertility um, couples that come here, we find problems with the woman in all the departments. That means she has an anatomical problem and a structural problem and a hormonal problem and the husband's got a problem. So all these factors can compound into a, a large fertility problem, which we then have to do specialized treatment for. Right. Um, and shortly on the male side, what is the main causes you're seeing? Well, in, in terms of males, we are extremely concerned about trends that we're seeing. We know that uh, there are many um, aspects to male fertility in terms of environmental factors and lifestyle factors. We know that smoking, alcohol, um, and all these um, issues do play a role, type of diet and so forth. But I think there are other factors at play. These are historically the problems that we always talk about is alcohol, smoking, stress. So it's sort of a, a lumped diagnosis. But there are actually other factors that seem to be coming into the fray now. And there may be things like cellular phone usage, radiation from other sources, uh, laptops, almost you know a, a whole new spectrum of possibilities from our current technologies that we're using. And we think that they are causing increasingly more and more problems in terms of sperm production at the cellular level. So we're getting damage to the DNA in the parent cells that produce the sperm. And we're getting a decline in sperm morphology or sperm shape. And in these days, we actually look at sperm morphologies of 90% abnormal as being actually normal. 
So if we have a man that comes with 90% of his sperm normally shaped, we still treat him as if he's a normal man because uh, we've now had to relax our criteria for various reasons. So yes, we're seeing a lot of other issues coming into it in terms of male causative factors. And speaking of addressing it, where are we currently in terms of our technology in helping these infertility problems? Yes, so in terms of therapy, we, we fortunately, uh, and this may be a blessing in disguise, is that the, the vast majority of male factor problems, barring obstruction or testicular failure, the vast majority of these abnormalities and sperm decline in con- quantity and quality can be managed successfully in a laboratory environment, okay? So, yes, there is treatment available. However, it does involve laboratory intervention. It does involve specialized fertility treatment as in IVF or microinjection technology, etc. So there, there is hope at the end of the tunnel for most men. Of course, we would like to see men uh, adopt a healthier lifestyle and take preventative measures, lose weight, avoid uh, certain foodstuffs that may be causative in terms of changing the male hormonal balances as well, uh, a lot of steroids in the food, stuff like that. So if there is a serious problem, yes, for men, we have solutions to the problem, and it may sometimes go as far as laboratory-based treatment. Now, if I could just maybe make one point before we part, in terms of your young university students, particularly who are worried about the future fertility, there's a very nice screening test, okay? It's a blood test that can help you predict your ovarian reserves and the amount of eggs that you have and to see whether it is on par with what is expected for your age. And it can alert you in advance to potential problems in terms of your egg reserves. And I think that if I had to recommend something, I would recommend that women go and have themselves tested for their ovarian reserves, a fairly accurate indicator of fertility potential for a woman, apart from the structural and other things that we're talking about, but purely on a hormonal basis and in terms of capacity to produce eggs. That's an excellent tip and so proactive after we've been talking about some pretty frightening things. (laughs) Listeners at home, you can take that, especially obviously if you're female and consider that as something that you can do proactively in light of wanting to get children maybe very soon or one day thank you so much for speaking to us it's been a pleasure thank you thank you so much dr kasim we really appreciate your time We've been speaking to Dr. Mohammed Iqbal Qasim about fertility and the trends within it. I got a little bit scared listening to that, but I do understand that it's so important for us to understand a little bit more about this topic and not just think it'll be fine when I do want to have kids. So if you're growing a family, this is what you need to know. Today is Family Day on the Science Inside, and we are going to continue after the break with Unscience. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Welcome back to the science inside. We now take a break from the slightly heavier, sciencey, meaty things to some science that is relatively ridiculous. It's a feature called Unscience, and we look at weird and wonderful research that you won't believe scientists have spent that much time, effort, and money on. I am here with Today's information comes from National Geographic, Scientific American, and music by Orange Free Sounds. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. I'm here as always with Budget Lepper, our producer, who's here for us with some ridiculous unscience. Ridiculous it is, but in a cute way. Today on Unscience, we speak about cute aggression. Cute aggression i don't see how that works bridget isn't that two very opposite things either you're aggressive or you're cute yeah it was a phrase coined around 1994 but then they say there is a reason why we want to bite into cute things when we do see them okay like cute things a pink cake cute things a puppy 
Well, have you ever heard of the expression, you look so cute that I want to just eat you up or had the urge to squeeze or kiss a cute baby or animal? See, I have heard this from many people, especially like you say, if there's a baby in the room, people are always like, oh, I could eat it up. I have never personally identified with that. Why would you bite a baby, guys? It makes no sense to me why people's brains jump there. But I recognize it's a thing. A lot of people say that. Yes, it has been dubbed cute aggressiveness because even though this does seem aggressive, but the person reacting in this fashion has no intention of physically hurting the subject of their affection. According to biologist anthropologist Dr. Gwen DeWar, the urge to nibble cute creatures might be a case of getting one's wires crossed. And in a study conducting functional magnetic resonance imaging scans on women who unwittingly sniffed newborn infants, the results showed that the odors activated reward-related areas of the brain. These are the same regions that trigger a pleasurable rush of dopamine, such as when we lay our hands on a piece of food that we love. Do you get the picture? First of all, I'm just imagining a scientific study where blindfolded women are being given babies to sniff. That sounds hilarious. But yes, I'm kind of starting to see that there might be a link between those two brain areas or brain functions. But I'm not completely convinced. Why have I not experienced this if I am a woman who apparently would be going around sniffing babies. Well, according to findings in this research, our brains respond to how we perceive cuteness is the same as seeking food. It's weird, I know. This study suggests that psychology behind wanting to bite stems from the physiological need, which may be part of our evolutionary heritage of wanting to handle the offspring of species similar to our own. For instance, in the case of monkeys when a new baby monkey is introduced to the clan all the other members line up to welcome the newest addition so to speak by touching nuzzling and inspecting the new bundle okay i get the the analogy and there there might be a link but we are not monkeys we can talk to each other we can express our cute feelings and our aggressiveness in other ways but we don't have to go nibbling other people's babies <laughs> why would we still have a need for this physiologically i totally agree with you but according to primatologist Susan Perry, this nuzzling and nudging and biting in primates is some form of social bonding where a bond of trust can be created. This is not far-fetched from humans. After all, we are derived from our primal ancestor, the Homo erectus. In some people, the aggressive urge they feel when they see an adorable animal or baby may be connected to their emotional health state. The pseudo-biting in humans is not only for feeding or aggression. These behaviors that in our eyes resemble aggression are in fact a normal part of the social setting for many mammals because before any of us were able to grow up and have strong bones and teeth we all began our lives by being enthusiastic nibblers who inspect anything we come across by working at it with our jaws and our fingers first okay that does make a lot of sense actually okay Bridget I may not I may not connect with this, but I kind of get your point now. All right. (laughs) I'm happy about that. That is, with the science inside, unusual, unlikely, unscience. Very strange. If you love nibbling animals or humans or love sniffing babies, now you understand the science behind it at least. Next up, we look at the scientist behind the science with Nyasha Chimandamba. Stay listening. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elma. You're still listening to the Science Inside, and we go now to an interview that we love doing every week to show you a little bit about the humans 
behind the science. Today we're talking to Nyasha Chimandamba. She did her honours in cellular and molecular biology at the University of Cape Town and is currently doing her master's at the Graduate School of Business there. She won the UCT 2017-2018 FameLab Science Communication Competition, which is quite an achievement. And we're talking to her a little bit about her work today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So your honours work that you completed was about creating a luminescent biosensor that indicates when plants are salt-stressed. Tell us about whether this was a success and how did it help or how would it help protect food security in times of drought? All right. Um, So basically what we were looking at was salt-stress. So... Um, particularly when you look at arid or like semi-arid areas, um, for example, let's say Cape Town, we start looking at using reusable water to irrigate our land, and that results in secondary salinity stress. And um, it's quite bad for plants. So plants basically go through an ionic phase in which um, plants, like the ions actually accumulate at the root level of the plant, and that results in them not being able to actually take up water and the result is actually stunted growth and the actual killing of plants. So for your crop plants such as maize and just general agriculture, this isn't a good thing. And so we wanted to create a biosensor um, using the protein called luciferase. And it's a protein that makes your fireflies glow. Um, so it's a bright protein. It literally lights up. And we wanted to um, engineer it in such a way that there would be a sodium binding domain so that we will be able to actually measure the amount of sodium within a plant at an actual concentration. And why we wanted to do this is because no one's actually been able to um, measure the sodium iron concentration in a plant that's um, battling from salinity stress. And the current um, solutions out there tend to be really expensive and they don't allow you to measure it at like a subcellular level. Um, to understand what exactly is happening within a plant. And so, unfortunately, because it was my honours project and we didn't have a lot of time, um, we probably would have gotten to more tangible solutions had I gone to master's, maybe PhD. Um, but in the end, I was able to actually clone the biosensor successfully, but I wasn't able to express it properly and suspect it was because the actual protein itself was very insoluble. And so um, the project is still there and there's a lot of research to continuously like be done for it to be like effective and actually work. Hmm. So one, one project that you've brought to a certain, uh, a certain place and other people are carrying it on because you are currently working on other things. And I thought it was quite interesting to find a scientist studying at a graduate business school. And what yes. you're doing there is developing solutions for the feminine, uh, feminine hygiene market. And yeah. what you're trying to do is pair scientific ideas with the idea of creating a product. How have you found that process? I think that has been honestly so fulfilling and exciting for me, um, mainly because in my third year or second year of studying my science degree, I realized that I wanted to be a kind of scholarly practitioner. I liked tangible solutions. I liked business. I liked other things, but I also enjoyed science, and it didn't seem like there were many career options for me, so I decided to create, create one on my own. And so I came up with this idea of um, a menstrual hygiene product because I was in a situation where I had to travel back home to Zimbabwe and there was a like 10-hour waiting period at the border. And I just realized that there were so many inconveniences for women who are menstruating to just, for example, change their pads. And so we started looking, me and my business partner, who's also doing the same degree as me, we started looking into this deeper. And we just came to the understanding that the general theme of menstrual hygiene management is beyond just giving a woman a pad or addressing the issue of blood. It's also about empowering women enough that they're able to have good hygienic practice for their menstrual hygiene management. Um, So I think a lot of people often overlook the fact that there's not a lot of water in a lot of, let's say, rural areas. 
and there's bad sanitation infrastructure. And that leads to driving cultural taboos and stigmatization. And that results in women actually now hiding and practicing very unhygienic menstrual hygiene practices. This can lead to vaginal infections in the actual vaginal microbiome, such as bacterial vaginosis, which isn't a good thing because in the kind of landscape of South Africa, it compounds other issues such as contraction of STDs um, or even infertility problems because certain bacterial infections in the vagina are very like closely linked to the contraction of STDs and female infertility and such. And so we realized that like we enjoyed science, but there's this whole landscape in which science can be translated into socioeconomics, into epidemiology. And we wanted to kind of combine all of those things as business-minded, um, socioeconomic-minded scientists and start creating solutions towards that. And so it's been quite exciting on my side and business schools allowed me to do that. You have really shown us just through your answer what the need is for this product. And I know it's still in development. You may not be able to talk about it fully because it's in progress. But tell us a little bit more about how you're hoping to fill that need. Um, So basically right now um, and for the past few years, we've been trying to formulate a product that focuses around... um, washing for women and as I said around these hygienic practices so what are the products we can allow women to use when they're in the rural areas and let's say they do are able to get a sanitary pad but the infrastructure doesn't allow them to go change or wash or there's not enough water to actually be able to wash themselves um, um, to be clean and so we're, we're developing a product around menstrual washing and we're trying to see if we can make it um, well-suited to be compatible with the actual vaginal biome. Because one of the things, um, microbiome mother, one of the things that we've also seen is that there's a general mistrust of um, female or feminine products. Um, the perception out there is, you know, these things um, make women itchy or they're going to ruin your vaginal microbiome. They're going to cause problems, which is often what happens. So we're also really trying to put emphasis on producing a product for women, by women, um, that is going to be adequately designed to um, help you actually clean the blood, um, clean yourself, clean your body, even when water is not available, but something that's not going to actually damage anything in your personal and private areas. Hmm. Nyasha, not every little girl or boy grows up thinking, I want to study vaginal microbiomes for a living or for eight hours a day. How did you um, journey into science? Um, So I think I've always, I think one thing I know is that I've always wanted to be in the scientific space. So initially it became a thing of I wanted to be a medical doctor. And I never got into medicine, but I did get into um, genetics and biochemistry at UCT. When I started that degree, you know, my plans were, you know, I'm going to then transfer to medicine and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But as I started going into science, I realized that my fundamental need was to help people. And helping people can happen in multiple ways. And I realized that, like, I wanted to do it on a mass scale. I didn't necessarily want to be the person that had person-to-person contact with every single person, but if I could make something that could impact several lives, then I'll be content. And science was a good way of doing that. But then I guess over time, I also realized that, um, you know, when I started becoming, you know, a businesswoman and stuff, I found that my degree wasn't equipping me enough in the business skills to talk to investors or the communication skills to speak to general audiences. And so I had to start kind of changing that up and making sure that I was more of a holistic individual, that I can speak, you know, scholarly conversation, I can speak like an academic when it's relevant, and then I can speak to general audiences when it's relevant, and I can speak to business people when it's relevant. And so I guess this is how I found myself here. A lot of it wasn't planned. I didn't intend to produce a feminine hygiene product, but I kind of stumbled my way into this journey. And some of the greatest 
products and journeys do start that way. I want to end off by asking you something that we ask most of our guests on this particular type of interview, which is what is the one thing that you wish ordinary people listening to the science inside knew about your field of study? What can your field of research really teach us? I think something that ordinary people could know, and even scientists themselves, I think, is that a lot of people don't realize that science in many ways is the fundamentals to everything. And so when you have a science degree, I think particularly biochemistry and microbiology and stuff, a lot of the things in the bigger scheme of the world are just an aspect of biomimicry. They mimic the fundamentals of what science already is. And so a science degree very strongly equips you to be a very versatile and dynamic person. And not all of us just kind of a skate around people and just sit in a lab and only work on that. We're very diverse people with skill sets that can apply to many things. Definitely. And your story is is a good showing of that. We've been talking to Nyasha Chimandamba. She is at UCT, currently doing her master's at the Graduate School of Business there with a background and still a very strong focus on science. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. We have almost come to the end of our show, but keep listening. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Happy Family Day from The Science Inside. We've had quite a lot of things to do with family. First off, we found out that our producer, Bridget, has a certain gene that makes her hate coriander. Yes, that's a real thing. We then found out a little bit about what you can do as a young person to understand your fertility if one day you want little ones. And then we heard from a young scientist about how she's trying to use science to to fulfill and help a big problem that a lot of young women face in South Africa. A big thank you to all of our guests on the show, including Nyasha Chimandamba and Dr. Mohamed Iqbal Kassim. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Harmony Malefi, Lebohang Madisha and Gloria Mabuza. And as always, our trusty tech guy is Kutlano Sehame. My name is Alna Schutz and you can find the podcast on Vips journalism.coza forward slash science we're on social media all over Facebook and Twitter you can find us there the Science Society is produced by the Wits Radio Academy funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology join us again next week stay curious stay informed stay on the Science Inside the Science Inside podcast